I'm Michael Maloney, founder of Satellite Design for Recovery. I'm Robbie Boundy, founder of Space Impulse. I'm Rick Ward, founder and CFO of Orbit's Edge. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. I, I think there's tremendous potential that we're uh, not taking advantage of. I, I like to make the point that, you know, most of the uh, financial investors are scared to death of uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and reusability. They figured the billionaires are doing it. They can't afford to compete. The truth is it doesn't take a billionaire to build a reusable flight system. They're simple. You know, if you can build a low-cost expendable launch vehicle, you can build a low-cost reusable launch system. They're really mm -hmm. one and the same, the way you operate them. The only thing that's different is the TPS and, to some extent, the engine. I would draw an analogy for you, microwave ovens. You know, the technology for microwave ovens dates back to World War II, but they really didn't take off until the 1970s. Time for another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast and show about the challenges of scaling space firms. And I love to bring on guests who have been in the thick of it. This is Jeff Spottable. He's a former, or he is a DARPA pro program manager, former DARPA program manager uh, in thick with the Air Force. Uh, we had to get approval for our questions and answers from the Air Force here. And I'm really appreciative of Jess here for going through that. Uh, it is a fairly long process. I think we booked this in November or December and we've been uh, waiting for it. We got the approval. Um, a lot of potential guests won't go through that because it seems too onerous for them. So thank you for doing that and for being here today. Thank you, you bet. Jason. Good to be well, on. <laughs> let's see here. Um, I, I it was really impressed with your LinkedIn resume, you know, reading through it and that. Uh, you've had this super long career. Tell us a little bit about your background. I think this is going to be really relevant to space listeners. Yeah, I, I'm uh, definitely, uh, as a general officer once called us, a flat-headed booster puke. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been doing space my whole career, a lot of it launch-related. Um, just to... Uh, Kind of lay that out. I started in the Air Force, active duty, uh, rose through the rank of uh, lieutenant colonel, 20 years. Uh, did a bunch of really cool programs like global positioning system, where we deployed the early uh, operational satellites or prepared to deploy them. And, uh, and then later the uh, uh, Delta Clipper Experimental. Then even later, the, a little program called X-40 that led to the X-37 that's flying today. So. I uh, have been in the thick of this as all of these various commercial entrepreneurs uh, have, uh, have taken the next step. Then after I left the Air Force, I uh, went over and uh, actually joined an entrepreneurial firm working for Pete Conrad, the Apollo 12 and Skylab commander for a few years. Uh, I spent about three years from 1998 to 2001. Unfortunately, Pete died on a motorcycle accident and the dot-com busted and uh, so all the initiatives he tried to start uh, went away. Then finally, I came back in the government and kind of split my time between the Air Force Research Laboratory and DARPA over the, the last portion of my career. So it's been a, a very rewarding time. I've uh, helped mature a, a thousand and one technologies, uh, tried to get uh, various programs going. And we can talk about that as we, uh, we go through this uh, discussion. All right. Yeah. I mean, you managed over 50 contracts. And uh, for those who haven't run into Pete Conrad yet, go to Wikipedia and look him up. Even the Wikipedia article, as dry as they can be, this one uh, has some pretty funny anecdote sort of things in there. And you get a feeling for his character. Yeah, he, he was a, a great man in every way. Yeah. So I, I did want to 
mention though that I don't work for the Air Force right now. Mm. I work for Aerospace Corporation, mm. which is a uh, federally funded uh, research and development center that supports the Air Force space activities across the board. Right, right. So with all this experience, what, what has been your favorite program so far? Well, you know, I could never break it down to just one. So let me <laughs> give you two examples. <laughs> uh, the first and by far the biggest impact Impact uh, probably any air or space program ever is the global positioning system program. You know, you, people don't appreciate that when we started that program, um, how much we would learn and, and how it was going to take off in a huge commercial way. So uh, we certainly didn't think it would take off the way it did at that time. We knew it was important, but uh, we didn't think that it would take off. And I would point out the Air Force didn't even want the GPS program. It was forced on them by Congress, you know. So uh, today you couldn't take it away if you, if you try. They will keep it. So, um, so GPS is way up there. And, and there are several reasons for that. It's not just that it did great things, but it was how it was done. You know, when I went to work for GPS, best engineers in the world were working for the Air Force and the Aerospace Corporation supporting the program. They were, they were as good as the contractor. They knew more than the contractor in many instances. I was in awe of the people I worked for. Huh. Um, so uh, that you don't see that as much anymore. And, th and then the other thing is we actually built test satellites before we deployed the operational systems. You know, normally in aircraft, you build experimental prototypes first. But we actually deployed 12 prototype uh, qualification satellites and tested the whole network before we deployed the production constellation. So, mm -hmm. um, and that reduced the risk, made it easier to do, uh, brought the cost down significantly, uh, made everything much, much easier in terms of uh, deploying an operational capability where we knew what was going to come. Very, very so challenging, cool. mind you. The second program, though, that I really absolutely enjoyed was the Delta Clipper Experimental. And I was the government program manager on that. I was at the Strategic Defense Initiative when that program occurred. And uh, I got there uh, at the beginning of the uh, development and, and hung in there through the flight testing. So it was uh, a lot of fun to work with a tight, close-knit team to develop the technologies for a complex four-engine vertical takeoff and landing flight demonstrator. It was subsonic. Um, but we went down there in the desert, we took it off, we threw it through 180 degree angles of attack uh, 12 different times over three years. And uh, it did a great job before it happened to land one day with wheels up. Which, by the way, there's no shame in wheels up landing. I've had classmates who ended up landing wheels up. They're not in the Air Force anymore, but, uh, <laughs> but it does happen. And we, uh, we had the same problem, uh, a manual error that, huh. uh, that caused it to fail in, uh, and burn up. But it was always not lost, even though NASA and the Air Force didn't really pick the program up uh, for very long, they did for a little while, um, the commercial sector jumped in. So mm. you know, five gigabytes of that flight test data we distributed to uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos teams, and they did a great job and have carried it to far greater heights. Okay. Uh, for those who are not super familiar with this terminology, can you explain what an ops demonstrator is? Well, we called the uh, DCX many things, mm. of course. <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> Some colorful names. <laughs> an iron bird, you know, very <laughs> yeah. heavy, made from available materials to keep it cheap. Uh, but we also called it an ops demonstrator because the one goal of the program that we absolutely wanted to demonstrate was aircraft-like access to space. And um, we wanted to make sure that the operations that we demonstrated were traceable to how you would fly the follow-on systems that would come afterwards. And we spent a lot of effort trying to make sure that would be the case. So we, we actually demonstrated. I mean, Pete Conrad could go out there uh, and from a cold start, uh, start the vehicle up and have it flying within four hours. And he could, could have probably pushed that down to one or two hours if he really wanted to. We were actually flowing uh, autonomously and remotely the liquid oxygen and the hydrogen, we were filling the tanks at the same time, something we don't do routinely or even at all in, uh, in most of our programs today. So, um, and then finally, we, we actually demonstrated a, a 27 hour turnaround time. So from the time we put wheels on the ground to the time we landed the next day, uh, 27 hours. And that was uh, amazing. And I gotta tell you, uh, uh, we were trying to make it happen in eight hours, but there is a funny story that goes with that, and that is uh, I got a call after we finished that 27-hour turnaround time from White Sands Missile Range telling me I had to shut down Pete Conrad because he was talking insurrection on the range. He wanted to fly three times in one day, and I just was on the phone back in D.C., and I was talking to my White Sands Missile uh, manager. I said, look, I'm not going to shut down the third guy to walk on the moon. Are you crazy? <laughs> um, let him talk. He's right. That's what we should do. I don't know if we can do it or not, but that's what we should have done. Okay. So a lot of pushing the envelope here. Um, you've got a story in here uh, more about Pete uh, wanting to get into the, to the craft. Uh, it was, it was oh, designed yeah. to be automated. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a lot of really good Pete stories, but Pete <laughs> argued from the beginning of the program. And, you know, when I first met Pete, he said, you know, this program really rings my bell. Fortunately, the program didn't have to pay for him. He came under McDonnell Douglas overhead. Mm. And so I could afford to have him. And he was our flight manager. And he truly did all the work uh, of flight managing. But he had argued from the day one, both to the company hierarchy and, and to uh, uh, the SDIO leadership, that he really wanted to fly the vehicle and we should take the parachute out of the nose and put a little cockpit in there that he could fly. And uh, we obviously weren't going to put the third guy to land on the moon into that capsule. And also, in fairness, one of the fundamental goals of the program was to demonstrate autonomy, hmm. autonomous flight operations, which in that era was not a given. So at any rate, uh, first day came, we flew picture perfect. Uh, took off, uh, rotated over, came down, and lo and behold, hydrogen being the insidious uh, propellant that it is, a little of it got up under the lip of the nose cone and caught fire. The parachute right. started burning. So, you know, Pete was cool as a cucumber. He always was. Anytime he's dealing any kind of ops, man, just cool as can be, pure test pilot. And he just calls in the fire department with their water cannon and methodically over about uh, 20, 25 minutes, he had them put the fire out. So finally, <laughs> once that was done, he sits back in his chair, rolls back, turns to me and says, Jess, I'm just as glad you didn't allow me to fly in the nose of that vehicle <laughs> with a totally dead pit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. So we all cracked yeah. up. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, Pete seems to have been a hell of a guy. I mean, uh, just reading through his rebellious streak, uh, <laughs> you know, reading through his, his uh, pushback against the testing to get into the, the test pilot programs or the NASA programs and that is, is pretty amusing. And you just see this continuing on as he goes. So uh, after that, I guess he decided to try out uh, some commercial ventures and he came up with something called Universal Space Lines. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, so Pete started an entrepreneurial company um, called Universal Space Lines and, uh, and also Universal Space Network. And USL was going to operate reusable space planes eventually, but in the meantime, they were going to try to do what Elon did. They were going to build an expendable launch vehicle and uh, use that as the technical basis for building a follow-on reusable vehicle. Hmm. And... Uh, but he had another venture that it went with that, uh, Universal Space Network, and uh, that was uh, putting up large 10-meter antennas all around the world. We had, I think, five of them when I left the uh, company in 2001. And uh, we actually were, you know, if you want to make a phone call to your satellite, instead of building your own ground infrastructure, you just dial into the uh, infrastructure through the internet and you uh, program your call and you get your data or whatever it is you need. So it's all automated, everything. Hmm. It's a great concept. Unfortunately, it's really hard to get people to change and uh, uh, they haven't uh, changed to a great extent, but the program did go on uh, and ultimately was uh, purchased, I think by Swedish Space Corporation. Hmm. And um, they're uh, still running it and, uh, and doing a, a great job there as well. The other half of the company, uh, Rock, Rocket Development Company and Universal Space Lines, we just could not raise enough money to go on and do what Elon did so successfully. Hmm. But we're proud of Elon. Yeah. We, we view him as a son and we think that he's done a really good job with SpaceX and carrying on Pete's vision. Mm-hmm. Well, very, very cool. And those Swedes, <laughs> they, they do some good stuff. I've been trying to get the GOM space people on this show for a while. And haven't got much headway. Uh, they just seem to kind of focus on their work and, and whatnot. So you, you've managed over 50 DARPA contracts and have had a lot of experience with satellite programs. So let's talk about those for a minute. Yeah, so, so uh, over the last decade, um, I spent about seven years up at DARPA a couple different times. And um, I uh, ran a, a couple of big pro programs. One was called uh, FAST for Fast Access to Space Technology. Uh, or fast access space technology, fast, and it was a uh, a very lightweight solar array that, when you combine it with continuous thrust electric propulsion, would enable you to move around hmm. Earth, uh, cislunar space quickly with the efficiency of turbojets. You hmm. know, so you're two thousand seconds of specific impulse for the technically inclined. Yeah. Um, and because the thrust is continuous and the power system is so lightweight you could move fast between orbits. You know, I, mm -hmm. when I say fast, you know, days and weeks versus uh, uh, what a chemical propulsion system too. But the interesting thing we found that as you move towards interplanetary flight, this continuous thrust capability is actually faster than yeah. chemical propulsion. Yeah. So um, we uh, studied it a lot. We actually built a large segment of an array and tested it uh, on the ground and, and demonstrated that you could do it. The other program, um, which I left a couple of years ago was the experimental space plane program. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that program did not uh, fare quite as well. 
Uh, Boeing carried it through uh, approximately a critical design review and uh, then decided that they, uh, uh, although that it was technically feasible, they decided that they uh, did not want to pursue it financially. They just had too many problems with Supermax and they wanted to focus in on their core missions uh, and not the future. So um, uh, that was unfortunate, but it did carry along a vertical takeoff horizontal landing vehicle concept to uh, a next, uh, next generation potential. Um, and uh, although I personally really like the vertical takeoff and landing concepts, I think they're superior and easier technically to do in many ways. I, uh, I think that the, this century is gonna see a lot of different reusable launch concepts hmm. happen. And that will include obviously horizontal lander, Virgin Galactic and others are doing. Hmm. So, um, you know, uh, other than that, I just was kind of the king of small business innovative research contracts up there. So I had a lot of small, you know, anywhere from under a million to a little over a million dollar contracts maturing a whole host of, of new technologies. Um, one of the more exciting ones was a, a very lightweight a composite tank. I mean, extremely lightweight uh, by the standards we pursue today, probably four times lighter than what a typical tank would weigh and stronger and, uh, you know, several other advantages of the technology. And uh, the other key technology that was really taking off and I had several projects on was additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is allowing us to build rocket engines like we never have before. And uh, we did some work with uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne as well as other companies developing additively manufactured uh, rocket concepts. Since I left, I've been working with a friend of mine. He actually bought it. It's a pressure-fed rocket. It's only 25 pounds of force, but it cost him 800 bucks. He additively manufactured the whole thing, and it works perfect. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can do with these modern technologies that are coming on. What cost us tens of millions of dollars to do on the DCX program, you can do today for uh, pennies on the dollar, literally. Hey, this is Jason Canigan from Cold Star Tech. Thanks for listening in. I'm going to quickly interrupt the interview to talk about a new course I am offering for space startup founders. If you're a space startup founder and eventually you're looking at getting invested in, getting some of that good old venture capital pouring into the system, uh, then you're going to need this because I have done tons of one-on-one calls with space founders and discovered several consistent things that are just plain missing from their businesses. And uh, these things are so important that every time a VC looks at your pitch, they're going to say, nope, no thanks, bye-bye. And so if you want to avoid that problem from happening and actually get to the promised land of being funded, then sign up. All you have to do is go to this address and drop in your email and sign up for it. It's coldstartech.com SBM. That is for info about the course and the first part of it uh, will be given to you as it comes out. So go check that out. Do it now before you forget <laughs> if you're a space founder. And now let's get back to the interview. And I'm curious how often you see technology get developed to a point where it could be widely adopted and then it just kind of sits there and doesn't get adopted. So how much potential have we got sitting around that we could be making use of? Well, I think there's tremendous potential um, that we're uh, not taking advantage of. I I like to make the point that, uh, you know, most of the... uh, financial investors are scared to death of uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and reusability. They figured the billionaires are doing it. They can't afford to compete. 
the truth is it doesn't take a billionaire to build a reusable flight system. They're simple. You know, if you can build a low cost expendable launch vehicle, you can build a low cost reusable launch system. Um, they're really one and the same, the way you operate them. Uh, the only thing that's different is the, the TPS and, and to some extent, uh, the engine. So um, I would draw an analogy for you, um, microwave ovens. You know, the, mm. the technology for microwave ovens dates back to World War II, but they really didn't take off until the 1970s. Right. Um, we actually had a program in the 1980s called Have Region, where we built an all-metallic honeycomb structure, nearly single-stage to orbit vehicle. In fact, we built three structures structures of them, cross sections of the vehicle, not the entire vehicle, and we tested them on the ground. We're just trying to determine whether or not we can close those vehicles. We concluded that you can close the vehicles. There were still concerns about operability, and but you know those are concerns you're never going to answer until you build something and fly it. So yes, you, you can build these types of vehicles and you can fly them. And by the way, Elon's demonstrating that every day. You know, if you look at the Elon's structural weights, it's amazing. He's building whether you want to, I know he, he's doing two stage to orbit, but you know, if you just design them a little bit differently, those are single stage to orbit machines. I just amazing. Now, I'm not advocating single stage to orbit. I think commercial uh, two stage makes more sense, but you know, the technology is there to do amazing things if people want to reach out and grab it. And that's also true on the satellite side. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk about that and the satellites and the DOD, small sats. Do you think they're getting ready to, to get into that field and develop small sat systems? Well, they, they certainly talk about it. Um, you know, in, in my head, uh, one of the first small sat systems was the global positioning system. Hmm. It weighed about 1,700 pounds, but in that era, that was a small sat. So when I was a second lieutenant, we considered small sats. Uh, that size or, and then a little bit later as a captain, they were a thousand pounds and less. And nowadays we talk cube sats and kilograms, okay? But um, so the, the nature of the technology has changed dramatically. And um, I, I am hopeful that the Air Force is going to follow the commercial sector and go pursue some of these uh, uh, technologies for communications ISR that are in, involve distributed LEO constellations. Um, uh, but you know, we'll see what happens. They, uh, they are very, uh, they have a long history of dealing with, uh, exquisite large systems mm -hmm. and the air force needs to decide whether or not, uh, it's going to go down these paths or not. Uh, my guess is they will in some cases, in some cases they're going to need the, the physics of large apertures and large systems. I'm picturing a, uh, a chart with Jeff Spottable's rank going up and an inverse of the satellite weight of what is a small sack coming down. <laughs> that, that's pretty accurate, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you really do seem to be excited about the idea of reusable launch systems. How did you arrive at that conclusion that this is the way to go? Well, I, I already mentioned have region. Um, so I was uh, a happy satellite guy working out at Space and Missile Systems Center in the 1980s. And I uh, went and joined the National Aerospace Plan Program. And NASP was trying to do a single stage orbit vehicle, but they were trying to do it with an air breathing scramjet. And uh, uh, the program goals were laudable. A million new technologies were advanced and matured by the program. Uh, but the technology just wasn't within reach at that time, and it still isn't today. So, um, and even if you could make it 
where, you know, what I found was uh, I was working on a program that was classified at the time called Have Region. I already mentioned it, long since been declassified. Uh, but we were trying to build these very lightweight rocket structures and um, see if we could actually uh, demonstrate that we could get the weights and then hopefully you know, money would follow. But the point of that program and the NAS program both was if you really had aircraft-like access to space, you could do a lot of Air Force missions differently. And um, in the end, it doesn't really matter whether you take off vertically or horizontally. That's a technical question. And it doesn't matter uh, um, how you do it. What matters is, is the system reliable, supportable, maintainable, available, you know, all the things that allow us to turn commercial aircraft in hours. So I like to kind of pull all that together as aircraft-like operability. And uh, that's what I've been pushing for many years. We can do this. And I, I, to this day, see absolutely no reason why we're spending millions of dollars to get to orbit when it should cost thousands of dollars. And uh, not that it's going to be the, you know, the same cost as commercial travel, aircraft travel just yet, but it will be in the future. And there's no reason to think that's not going to happen. Okay. Let's see. Uh, I guess we can finish up with this question. Um, we've got all these advanced technologies at least ready to go. What if we start plugging them in? What's the impact going to be on manufacturing processes? Oh, well, I already mentioned additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. that, that is a revolution in and of itself. If you think about a rocket engine, has small capillaries for cooling, uh, actively cooling the nozzle. Very difficult to make using standard fabrication techniques. Additive manufacturing, you design it in the CAD system, you send the drawing to the, the guy and uh, he plugs it into his machine and he spits out the whole nozzle and thrust chamber assembly for you. So that, that is going to uh, radically change and has already radically changed um, how we build engines. I would point to Ursa Major in Colorado Springs, a small company that I worked a little bit with at DARPA. Uh, really, uh, they've already got a 5,000 pound thrust uh, engine that they're testing called Hadley. Uh, just amazing that they've been able to do this. And they're not the only ones. There's many other companies now that are using additive uh, manufacturing extensively in everything they do. So uh, that's one technology. But, you know, that's not the only one. There's many other technologies, a lot of it fueled by uh, the PC. I mean, when I started my career, we didn't have personal computers, believe it or not. I had an HP calculator when I went to college, and that was uh, considered a phenomenal technology <laughs> yeah. of the era, you know. Now, but nowadays, you buy them in Target, and they got far more capability. So everything has changed radically, um, and the software is slowly catching up. To enable that and, and it allows you to rapidly walk yourself through design iterations and come up with uh, newer concepts and test them out on a machine before you take them to flight. Um, so um, there's many new manufacturing technologies that have made all of this easier. Very, very cool. Where can people go if they want to get in touch with you? Hey, you know, I like what I'm hearing and a lot of experience here. I want to get in touch with Jess. Where should they go? Well, I, I um, under my uh, 
consulting company, uh, Ice Fox Technologies LLC, although I, I work for Aerospace, I want to tell you. You can have to get hold of me at, at the Aerospace Corporation, or you can contact me at Ice Fox Technologies, where I go by Jess at spawnable.space. All right. Well, that's pretty easy to remember, isn't it? <laughs> Grab that, that custom domain there. All right. My guest has been Jess Bonneville, uh, past DARPA pro. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to the Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of the Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring which is what we're all about and uh, drop in your email address there and i will be able to do that for you make space boring is another little show that i run it's a shorter format quick interviews and uh, news of the day and sometimes an update of who i'm meeting and what i'm learning in the space field it's on the same cold star tech channel speaking of which on the youtube channel i can do something i cannot do on the audio only version which is add playlists and so there may be topic area playlists on the youtube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.